page 125. Page 125. Jesus, 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 the sweetest name I know. There's within my heart a
Today mentioned this song, Amazing Grace, and <clears throat> in the writer, and uh, I'll not bore you with with the writer's details or anything of that sort. But uh, I think if he were here tonight, he could probably boldly stand and say, "I once was lost. I once was blind." But I'm thankful tonight. I once, me, I once was. What is it, 1 Corinthians 6? And such were some of you, but now ye are. Man, I love it. I love love the fact that I have a past that I can go back and and I don't want to stay there, Brother Kurt. I don't want to dwell there and, and relive that, Brother Gene, but... When I, when I get to thinking too much of myself, I can go back and see how vile I was. And uh, when I forget about how good God is, I can go back and see how wicked I was and how far He's brought me and how far He had to reach down. <laughs> this poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. And I'm thankful that I've got a yesterday... But I'm glad that I do have a today, but glory, hallelujah, I've got a tomorrow, amen? Amen. And it doesn't compare to today or yesterday. It far outweighs everything that I've experienced so far, amen? I am torn. Um, hmm. Tell you what, I'm going to warn you. I've already warned him, but... um, him is going to come and sing. I don't know what he's going to sing, Ashton, but I'm going to warn you, I may have the young folks sing. So while you're playing for him, you'd be thinking about what they're going to sing. I know you're 
multi-talented, okay? Uh, and, and you others be thinking that too. Yes, sir. got people like like brother brother james langston he'll he'll give you one time and then he'll call you out he's like oh, and you can't hear him when he calls you first time he's like oh i don't want to hear it if you're going to come up and sing and nobody knows what he says and then he gets on to you for not coming and i try to be graceful and say okay you come and then and i get on to him because he likes her but uh anyway you pray for ashton as he as he sings you pray for him he preached sunday night and uh, he's got to be pre. He, he doesn't have to. He has the opportunity to preach uh, tomorrow night at his home church. And then, um, when is it that you're going to back to your school? September 26th. All right. And then he graduated this past spring, summer, whatever it was. And he's been back there once already to speak at at uh, chapel service. And I think Nick, didn't you speak at chapel service one time last year? Or maybe I'm hoping you will. Maybe that's it. But uh, anyway, you pray for him. I, I I do tell him, but I am proud of him. And <laughs> proud about the opportunities that God's given. <laughs> We're watching that one. Nathan last night playing everything he laid his hands on. And Brother David had a little bit of root of bitterness spring up. I had to dig it right out because I can't do that. But I'm proud of him. Proud about God's hand on him. Now Nick, I don't know if you can play anything. I don't know if you can sing. But you've got a heart of gold. And just to see you walk through that door... You were, late. you were late Sunday night, about 15, 20 minutes late. But you don't know what a blessing it was to see you walk in. And I'm proud of you. I could go all the rest of these young ones. I just called out a few, probably shouldn't have done that. But I'm so thankful tonight Amen. that there is another generation that we could see in here tonight that are doing right. That are trying to stay in the right paths. And they're trying to stay in the right place so that they can bring their one day families up. And that blesses me. I don't know why I said all that. But I want you to sing I want you to sing like somebody's life depends on it. (laughs) My heart has been touched this week so far by the messages. I shared with the preacher at lunch today a, a burden on my heart. 
and I'll not share that with you tonight, but God has known exactly what this preacher has needed this week. And every single message has been wood. Well, David's been wood on that fire you talked about a few weeks ago. And I, I, I challenge you tonight, church, as they sing, the young folks are going to sing here in a little while. Just get in. Amen. Don't worry about the time. I know, I know y'all have worked, but you're here. Work's going to be there tomorrow. Your bed's going to be there when you get home. But And if you need to take a break, hit a timeout, go back and get you a Scooby snack, all right? And, and I, won't, I promise I won't be mad at you. But while you're here, just get in. Amen. Don't let God steal anything from you tonight, and don't quench the Holy Ghost. Just let God do a work tonight. You pray for him as his son.
this this direction. Get your song books out. You pray for them as they get ready to sing. I'm glad there's been some times that I've been in the garden with him. Amen. Seems like nobody but him, nobody but me, but that still small voice, voice has been sweet. And I'm glad that when when I've been there, and it seems like I've been all alone, I'm glad for Kenny that he does speak. He does whisper some things to me. Sometimes it's just I'm here, and that's it. I've heard, heard stories about Brother Joe Parsons. Never met him. I've heard stories about him. He'd go in a secret place and he'd just stay there. He wouldn't pray anything. He would just go in a secret place and wait to hear from the Lord. Sometimes Brother Dean would go to the garden and just wait. Sometimes all God says is, I'm here. He doesn't give us a direction. He doesn't give us some revelation. Just in case you're wondering, I'm still here. All right, you pray for them as they sing. Go ahead, drop the nails in my hands, laugh at me where you stand.
Amen. you come. God's been good to us tonight. Just give us a little gentle breeze. How many's got your Bibles tonight? You get that ready, you mind the Lord, preacher. Do what the Lord tells you to this evening. Well, I've come to the place in life when I don't care how the Lord shows up. If he comes in in a whirlwind and the meeting is as we label it high and the shout is loud and rowdy and rambunctious, that's all right with me. I like to get in on it. And if God decides to come by and the meeting is tempered with a conviction and quietness, Contemplation, I'm okay with that too. And uh, if it's about him or if it's about us, I'm okay. But what I don't want is him to ever leave us to ourselves. We don't want to be left to ourselves. Amen. Just come by and meet with us and help us. And if he'll come by and meet with us and help us, then when we leave, you know, we always grew up saying, when we leave, we'll say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And I guess that's all right. But I don't want to just leave saying it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I, I want to leave different than I came. I want there to be something about my life that is not the same as it was when I came. Because we are not yet perfect. Now, I recognize that the man born of God cannot sin. But I can't see him. I see that outer man. And he needs a lot of work. Amen. And God knows how to bring us to the place where he can do something and labor in our lives. Am I right? Amen. Well, I want you to take your Bibles for a few minutes. I want to look at a passage. I'm just going to lift a, I'm going to lift a verse out of a passage of Scripture tonight and deal with it just for a few minutes. I want you to turn to Psalms 85, if you would. Psalms 85. I've been preaching in Psalms 85 fairly consistently for some months, to be honest, and and I'm just going to be I'm going to be honest about it tonight. I had not intended to go this way this evening, but I felt like early in the service that the Holy Ghost spoke to my heart and uh, brought me to this particular passage of Scripture. In my mind, and and uh, we're going to read the entire chapter. We'll start in verse number one because I want you to see some things as we read the chapter. It's the great text of revival, and uh, and and I'm grateful that God is willing to revive His people. Amen. Amen. But but when I look at this passage of scripture, um. There are some things that surround this concept of revival. Revival 
is in verse number 6. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? And uh, there's much that could be and should be and must be said about that particular context. But there's some other things in this passage of Scripture that I want you to see with me tonight just for a couple of moments. I need to lay a little bit of a foundation. Psalms 85 is what we refer to as a national psalm. And I mean by that that it was written for the nation, not necessarily for an individual. But you'll find that often what was written or given to the nation in the Old Testament makes an application to the individual believer in the New Testament. This is one of those types of passages. And the context of Psalms 85, we believe, takes place following the Babylonian captivity where Israel has been taken captive for 70 years. They've been in the bondage of the, of the, they've been in the bondage of the Babylonian nations for 70 years. That's almost two biblical generations. I want you to think about that. For two generations, for two generations, the people of God have been in a pagan captivity. That's important because I'm persuaded that there were a whole lot of young Hebrews, young children of Israel that had no idea who God was. They had no idea that what was expected of them. Uh, And yet now God is moving in their midst after what would have been effectively, seemingly 70 years of silence. Now God has begun to stir and he has delivered the nation of Israel out of that captivity and brought them back to Jerusalem and restored them to their homeland. But it's just a remnant of what was there before. The wall's torn down. The city is desolate. Thirteen years earlier they built a temple, but it's not being used because, because really, to be honest, anarchy and, and chaos has overruled the city of Jerusalem. That's what they come back to, and we have to understand that in the context of what this Scripture says. And so let's begin in verse number 1. I'll make a comment or two in introduction as we go through the text, and then I'll drop anchor on the single verse that I feel like the Lord's touched my heart about tonight. The Bible said in verse number 1, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. As the psalmist begins to speak about the nation of Israel, and I remind you in verse number 1, he's talking about the land. He's talking about Jacob. And the context of Jacob is Israel as a whole. And he said, you've been favorable unto thy land, and you brought them back out of captivity. This is a picture, our type, of salvation, because that's what God did for us. He brought us up out of the captivity of sin and delivered us. Amen. You'll notice in verse number 2 that he talks about the forgiveness of their iniquities and covering of their sins. And then in verse number 3 he talks about their blessing. For he's taken away all of his wrath and turned himself from the fierceness of his anger. So so the, the psalmist on behalf of the nation of Israel is standing at a precipice of time. And he looks back at the past 70 years and he realizes the destruction that was there and how God in his mercy and in his love and in his compassion has delivered them 
and has brought them out of that captivity and put them back in the land of Israel or back in Jerusalem. But then in verse number 4, and by the way, seven verses constitute a prayer in the text. Verses 1 through 7 is the prayer of the psalmist. Verse 8 through 13 is the results of that prayer. But in verse number 4, the tone of the prayer of the psalmist begins to change dramatically. Verses 1, 2, and 3, to be honest, are seemingly voices of praise. You've been favorable to us. You brought us out of captivity. You forgave our sins. You turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. And I'm persuaded that they are terms of praise. But there was there was something in the heart of the psalmist because even though he knows they're not in the captivity of Babylon, things aren't real good in Jerusalem. There's desolation and destruction, famine, and uh, and uh, and destitution, if you will, and 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 so the psalmist understands that things are not what they should be, or maybe I should say it this way: things may not be what they could be. Let me ask you a question. You may be saved by the grace of God, but are things what they should be? You may be saved by the grace of God and you with a clear testimony could say, He has forgiven me. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Amen. And, uh, and, uh, and He's had favor in my life. He's put grace in my life. But I'm asking you a question tonight. Are things what they should be? Are things what they could be? Amen. Well, sometimes I'm afraid we're satisfied with the should be when we don't see what they could be. And God wants us to step back and to examine ourselves in light, not of where we are, but where God would have us to be. He'd like for us to see what His opportunity is in our life, what the potential of our life is. Amen. I guess if anything bothers me, if anything bothers me, uh, in this life in which we live, I really am bothered when I see people waste potential. Amen. And I don't consider it waste if a person goes a direction maybe that's a little contrary to, to what everybody thought they should have done or the pathway they should have taken. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not implying that. But I've seen people that have skill. I've seen people that have talent. I've seen people that have ability. Now, I mean that both secularly and spiritually. And yet I watch them as they simply wasted, satisfied with something far less than they could have had had they just sold out. Amen? And, and if that bothers me in the physical world, I, I can't stand to see that waste. May I say it really bothers me in the spiritual world when I see people that had a, a capacity to accomplish something for the glory of God, and yet they waste their lives on what the world has to offer in self-gratification often, amen, in not living up to the potential that God has placed in their lives. I think that the psalmist is in that condition when we step out of verse number 3. In verse number 3, the psalmist said, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. But I want you to notice that there's two components in verse 3. The first is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is affiliated or associated with the judgment of God. And he said secondly in verse number 3, He turned himself from the fierceness 
of his anger. And the anger and wrath are separate from each other. Wrath is the judgment of God. Anger is an emotion that expresses the disapproval of God. May I say, when he saved me, it extinguished his wrath. It's done. It's over. It's been covered. It's been handled. And the reason that the wrath of God was handled was because he emptied his wrath on his son at Calvary. Amen. It takes three nights of preaching to delve into the depths of it. But I'm persuaded that from high noon when God reached over and put out the sun, in the first three hours of the crucifixion, it was dealing with the accumulants of the law, the tenets of the law, and how that his body had to be quote-unquote broken to satisfy the demands of the law of God. But when you come to high noon, God reaches over, puts the sun out. So for three hours it does not shine because in that darkness there's a greater transaction takes place. For in the darkness God's not, God is not contending or Jesus is not satisfying the demands of the law. That's been taken care of when He became the sacrifice on the cross. But in the darkness He satisfies the demands of God in judgment. I can't even fathom that, Brother Samuel, but God, God had allowed, God had allowed His own wrath against mankind's dis- disgusting rebellion and sin. He had allowed it to pool up for 4,000 years. From Adam until Calvary, 4,000 years, and God's wrath had never been extinguished in 4,000 years. You say, why? Because Hebrews 10 said, burn offerings and sacrifices thou wouldest not. They never fixed the one who brought it. They never took sin away, and they never satisfied God according to Hebrews chapter 10. But they were a dam in the river of God's wrath. <laughs> And he kept piling it up and piling it up and piling it up. Blood, 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 blood. But it never satisfied the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, like a big lake, was pooling up 4,000 years of mankind's history. And at Calvary, in the darkness, what God did is he tore down the dam. (laughs) And in the Calvary, in the darkness of Calvary, God emptied himself of his wrath on his son. (laughs) Amen. All the wrath that was pinned up against 4,000 years of rebellion and sin against God and all of the judgment that came from that was pulled up and at Calvary, God emptied His wrath on His Son. Hang on a minute. That's wonderful, but I wasn't back there. And I can't explain that. Nevertheless, this. But in God's mind, He not only reached back to Adam and raked forward all of man's transgressions to Calvary, but he reached ahead. (laughs) Hallelujah. I'm not yet certain how far ahead he reached, but I know he reached about 2,000 years because it included me. Hallelujah. And I'll go as far as to say it includes today. And he reached forward in time 
And he knows because the foreknowledge of God knows. And he knows when the last of Adam's descendants will be born and live. And he reached all the way to the last of Adam's race. And he raked all of the wrath associated with all of their sins. And he brought it back to Calvary. And he's brought all the sin from Adam. And he's brought all the sin to the last of Adam's descendants. And at Calvary, he emptied his wrath. And the psalmist said, Thou hast taken away... All thy wrath. Hallelujah. May I say to you, the day I got saved, the day you got saved, when God forgave our sins and we were made new creatures in Christ Jesus, there was absolutely, teetotally, not one bit of displeasure in God concerning us. He had turned his tail from the fierceness of his anger. He was completely satisfied. I can't fathom that. I didn't say I understand that, but I sure do. Y'all gonna mess me up now. But I'm telling you, I rejoice in that. Thank God. Hey, I'm telling you, God was satisfied with me when he birthed me in his likeness. Cause that which is born of God cannot sin. It had no past. There was no judgment pending. Amen. And uh, and uh, he sealed it up. Thank God for that. That's why I'm as perfect on the inside as I'll ever be perfect. As perfect as the day he saved me and as perfect as I'll be when he presents me in the presence of the Father. And I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm telling you, verse number 3 is salvation. But verse number 4, here's the same psalmist. Here's the same man. And he said, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause Thine anger, not your wrath. But he said, cause thine anger, your displeasure, your emotional displeasure, cause thine anger toward us to cease. There's something happened between verse 3 and verse 4. Something has transpired in his life. And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's flesh. It's life. It's circumstance. Amen. And that's where we find ourselves. And now here is a group of people, two generations in captivity, that is ignorant of what God's expectations are in their lives. Amen. And and yet ignorance is no excuse. Amen. And ignorance does not eliminate the anger for the rebellion. Somebody help me right there. They've not gone to synagogue. They've not had a priest or a prophet. They've been in bondage in the in, in, in a pagan nation for 70 years, two generations. I mean, it was their great-grandparents were the last ones that knew something about the house of God. Nehemiah chapter 8 takes place in that quadrant of time, on that, on that quantum of time. And Brother Nathan, in Nehemiah chapter 8, you know what they did? They said, go find the book. <laughs> Not bad advice. If you don't know what to do, go find the book. Go bring the book of the law of God and begin to read it, begin to teach us, begin to show us what God expects out of us so that His anger will be extinguished upon us. He will not be angry with us forever. Now look at it. The psalmist said, man, we've been saved and we know we're saved and God emptied His wrath on His Son, and so we know that there will be no judgment. But He said, Thou hast turned Yourself from the fierceness of Your anger. You were not displeased with us, but now, Lord, we're not living up to Your expectations. 
We're not following in your footsteps. We're not obeying your law. We're not what you expect us to be. And so you're angry with us. And you ask the question, will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out thine anger to all generations? He said, Lord, if we're going to change the situation, you're going to have to do something. Are you with me? The psalmist throws up his hands not in disgust, but in surrender. Throws his hands up not in defeat. But in determination, he said, Lord, you're going to have to turn us because we don't even know which direction to go in. But if you'll put your hand on my head and turn me like a parent turns a child and impose your will on my will, we can get somewhere doing something for the glory of God. Amen. Then we come down to the sixth verse. And you know the sixth verse. I'm not... I'm just going to touch it. As I pass through, I told you I'd read all of it, and I'm not going to get there. But verse number 6, he said, Wilt thou not revive us again? That word means to restore breath. Amen. Restore breath. Put the breath of God back in a man. Amen. And he said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? I just want to hesitate just for a moment right there to remind you that the motivation of revival was to rejoice in the Savior. Can, can, can I go back and say that the motivation of revival is not a bigger crowd? The motivation of revival is not a bigger name. Amen. The motivation of revival is not a louder shout. But the motivation of revival is a deeper walk with the Savior. It's got to be about Him. We want to rejoice in you, but dead men cannot praise Him. Amen. So he said, Lord, wilt thou not? It's a rhetorical question, by the way. It's like saying, it's like saying, do fish swim? Amen. Or is the sun hot? Or is the sky blue? We knew the answer before we asked the question, but the question is asked for emphasis sake. And so the psalmist with a faith and a determined faith looks up toward heaven and said, Lord, wilt thou not revive us again? Lord, and, and, and you say, why would you say it that way, preacher? Because he used that word again. He said, we've needed it before, we'll need it again. And let me remind you that September the 12th, 2023 is not an end all. Amen. These days that God has afforded us, as great as they've been, it's not an end. It's just a step along the way. And if the Lord don't come back, you'll need something else. And in a few weeks or a few months, you'll need something else. But you can come back to Psalm 85.6 and say, Lord, wilt thou not revive us? What? Again. Again, here we are again. Here we are again. Here we are again. We need the breath of God back in us. Revival, sometimes, listen to me, revival comes in one of three fashions. One, sometimes it comes like CPR. It's an emergency situation. I mean, you're on life support. Somebody better grab the defibrillators and shock you. Amen. Somebody, somebody better put the mask on you and pump some life into you. It's as though you say to God, if you don't do something right now, Lord, I just don't make it. Make it. I'm going to be out. Amen. I'm going in a different direction. I can't hold on. Somebody help me. I need emergency intervention. Amen. Sometimes it represents itself as a means of rest. Amen. When you're just weary from the work. Amen. 
But then thirdly, sometimes it's just a sense of refreshing. It's not even an excessive tiredness, but it's just the, uh, it's just the weight of the load that one carries. And it's like a breeze on a summer day that blows across a sweaty brow. It just seems like it refreshes you. And as the Bible said, there's times in the book of Acts, there's times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Amen. And sometimes it's just a matter of God passing by and, and waiting in the garden. And, and letting God speak to you and sense it, the presence of God. That's all you needed to recharge your battery. Then you'll grab a wet noodle, swing out over hell, ready to face the devil and do something for the glory of God because God stepped in and refreshed you. But then we come to verse 7. And I want to, I just, if the Lord will help me, I want to look at verse 7 with you for just a few minutes. The Bible said, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I normally point this out. In verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, there's four things distinctly that the psalmist asks God to do in his life that brings him closer to the Lord. You see them. Turn us in verse 4. Revive us in verse 6. Show us in verse 7. And grant us in verse 7. Four things. And in all cases, the appeal is made to God and the object or the the, the one to whom it is to be done is us. It's an acknowledgement. I can't. He can't. It's an acknowledgement that I'm unable, but he's able. It's an acknowledgement that I never have been able to, but he still can. Amen. And so we come to the last two, and I, I want to, when you, when you talk about turning us, it speaks about direction. When you talk about reviving us, it talks about restoration. But then there's this phrase in verse number seven, show us thy mercy. Now, I, I, I did not, I did not speak in those historical terms. Seventy years of Babylonian captivity. You recall Psalms 137. You recall Psalms 137 takes place in the midst of that Babylonian captivity, probably early in the Babylonian captivity when they could still remember their song. The Bible said it was in by the rivers of Babylon. Yea, we sat down and we hung our harps on the willows. And those that were our taskmasters required of us a song, but... The songwriter, the psalmist said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I'm going to preach a message. I don't know when I'm going to preach a message, but I got some thoughts boiling around anyway. Amen. I'm going to preach a message, Brother Kurt, on how to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. <laughs> That's where you got to sing it. <laughs> Amen. You can't just sing the Lord's song when you get back home again. You gotta sing it in a strange land. You gotta sing it around strange people. You gotta sing it around a place that you don't feel at home about. Amen. How can you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If any of you preacher boys get any leads on that, go ahead and send me your outline and I'll preach it. Amen. I'm not proud. Somebody say amen right there. Brian Ashton said, I used something you used and preached earlier. And he said, I used it the other day at a meeting. And I said, wonderful. Brother Willard used to tell us, if you can take my stick and beat the devil with it, help yourself. Amen. I like that. Amen. And, 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 so, and so the psalmist said in verse number 7, he said, Lord, we've asked you to turn us and we've asked you, we've asked you to revive us. But now we're asking you to show us. And I said, I didn't just give you the history of the psalm 
for the purpose of its history. Sometimes that's necessary. But I didn't do that tonight for that purpose. I'm trying to get you to understand that the, the ones that are writing this passage, and no doubt there's just one author, but, but he's writing on behalf of a people, of a nation. And the one that's writing this and the ones he's writing about are two generations removed from liberty to worship God. Freedom to serve God are clear instruction from God. Amen. They've been carried away. They raised the temple. They destroyed every element of their faith. Right? And so for two generations, they've not lived a life that has been encompassed by the power of God. Yet He's delivered them. And so now they're saying this, Lord, would you show us thy mercy? Show us thy salvation. Amen. And if turning us speaks about direction and reviving us speaks about restoration, then the idea of showing us speaks about demonstration. And here's what the people were crying Here's what the children were saying. Here's what Israel was asking for. They said, Lord, we've heard, listen to me now, we've heard about what you've done for others. But we need you to do something for us. Amen? Oh, yeah. Now I want you to notice some things about Number one, I want you to notice the pleading in the demonstration. Read the text with me. He said, show us thy mercy, O Lord. Now, when he cries, show us thy mercy, what he's simply saying is this. I think you understand it. He said, Lord, we don't deserve it. We're not asking because we have merited your goodness. We're not asking because we've been A1 students of what God expects out of us. And, man, we've been an example for the world to follow. Oh, no, Lord. We're sitting over here, don't know what we're doing, spinning our wheels, turning in circles, not sure what you expect out of us, asking you to put your hand on us and turn us and flopping on the ground like a dead man, asking you to put life back in us because we're half dead. Amen. But he said, Lord, would you show us for mercy's sake? Not because we deserve that, but because you're merciful and you're loving. And then I get these two words, Brother G. He said, Oh, Lord. Mm. Amen. Show us thy mercy. Show us thy mercy. Oh, Lord. Amen. Do you hear the wail of desperation in his voice? Do you hear the cry in his voice? What you're hearing, beloved, in the context of that seventh verse is simply this. There is a pleading for God to demonstrate His power in their lives. Can I give you a word? Listen to me. He's desperate. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever got desperate? Amen. And I'm going to draw a division tonight. I'm going to draw a division. And it's interesting because I look out of this crowd and uh, I'm just going to be blunt. I'm not so happy I like what I see anymore. 
Now, y'all are all right. But the older I get, <laughs> even tonight I'm looking over this crowd and uh, I'm at the top of the pile. Don't you laugh. Still wet behind the ear. Amen. I mean, if I were to ask tonight, there wouldn't be an enormous amount of hands that would be raised that are older than I am. So that puts me up here, all of you down below me. Amen. And, 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 and I don't know if I like that or not, but it, 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 it gives me the capacity and I guess the authority, for lack of a better word, to, 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 to draw a conclusion in the midst, all right? But, but every church, every group of people really has three groups within it. That's natural, all right? You've got a senior crowd, and unfortunately, for me, that senior crowd is in a transition. I'm watching my heroes, and they're, they're disappearing. They're going to glory. I get it, all right? But they're not in my sight anymore, and they're leaving me in rapid order. Amen? And it's leaving me with very few in front. Amen? And then there's always a middle-aged group, and that generally constitutes the parents that are in this place as far as teenagers and young adults. And there's a middle-aged group in here. For the most part, most part, your, your, your child battles are past. And I mean, now you've just got some older teens or young adults, and they can be headache and heartache enough. Somebody say amen right there. And then there's a younger group, and it constitutes those that are young couples. And it goes downward until we find our beginners and our toddlers and our infants. That's the younger group. Amen. I don't know which group you're in tonight, but let me tell you something. This is the general observation I see. There was an older group. There was an older group that was ahead of us. And they got hungry for God. They got desperate for God. Amen. And they went to prayer closets and rock altars and they laid in the woods until God moved. They did what I preached about last night as Jacob held on to God and they wouldn't take no for an answer. And when they got up out of their prayer place, they dripped with the presence of God. And when they walked in, they demanded our respect because God was on them and God had His hand on them and God used them. Can I have an amen right there? And ultimately, it wasn't that they were superheroes. It wasn't even that they were super Christians. But what it was is they got super hungry. They got super desperate for God to do something. And America is the beneficiary tonight. And Lighthouse Baptist Church is the beneficiary tonight. And the Baptist movement as we know it is the beneficiary tonight of an older generation that is moving off the scene. Very few of them left tonight. And they got hungry and desperate for a move of God. And they wouldn't take no for an answer. And they turned things upside down for the cause of Christ. Amen. I'm going to be honest. The thing that happened was the generation that came after them never got as hungry. Because they never had to go further looking for it. Their revelation of God was watching their mamas and their daddies. And their grandmas and their grandpas. And they saw God do something in their lives and they, they knew who they could run to when that need arose in their life because there was somebody that could get to the prayer closet. 
There was somebody that could ring the doorbells of heaven. Can I have an amen right there? There was somebody that could enter into the presence of God. And though it's not an exclusive statement, I fear with all my heart that another generation came along. They knew God. And and to some degree they walked with God. But they never did have the demonstration of God on them because they didn't get hungry like that previous generation did. And they didn't get desperate like that previous generation did. It's not too late. Amen. Amen. But it's often been said that, that, that what one generation does in uh, moderation, the next generation will do in excess. So, so if we had an older generation that was desperate for God and held on and wouldn't let go, then we've got a second generation that knew God, but they didn't get desperate, so they didn't enjoy the touch of God and the hand of God like their, their fathers did. What it's produced is a third generation and their reverence of God and their, their, their revelation of God is an observation. They are standing on the sidelines and they're looking. But what the psalmist said is that generation is going to have to get hungry enough that they get desperate enough that they have to have God so that they're not satisfied with what they hear or what they saw, but they're going to get something that is their own. And that's my second thought. It was a, listen, it, it was a, uh, 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 it was a, it was a desperate demonstration. There's a pleading, oh Lord, we're hungry, we're desperate. But then it was a personal, it was a personal demonstration. He said, show us! We're not asking you to show our fathers. We're asking you to do something for us. Amen. My soul, what we've got to do is raise up another generation that'll say, I can't live on past experiences of another generation. i got to have my own. Amen. I don't like second-hand experiences. Am I right? Lord God, can you imagine? Can you imagine that if the the very best baker in Lighthouse Baptist Church made the very best, juiciest, moistest coconut cake you've ever seen in your life. Anytime I preach about cake, it's coconut cake. Hallelujah. I do believe that it'll be in heaven, but we'll wait and see. Amen. But can you imagine? Can you imagine that the best baker in this church decided to make a coconut cake and bring it tomorrow night? And, and, and a, so, a select few, just a select few, oh, let's impose an age limit. Those that were over 50 or those that were over 60, they was the only ones that got to participate in it. They got to come over and sit at a table and somebody cut them a slice and they enjoyed the delicacy of a feather-light, moist, dripping coconut cake. Somebody say amen right there. Hallelujah. And then you had another group out of the church, and they got to come by when that group was finished and eat what was left. It might just be some crumbs left on the plate, but thank God for crumbs. Get your spoon, scrape them up. But then it left another generation. It left a Nathan. Amen? And, uh, and, uh, and it left a Kurt. And it left a Ashlyn. And, and it left your child. And they're sitting there, and all they can hear is, mmm, that was good. 
Man, that's the lightest tasting coconut cake I've ever had in my life. That's the sweetest frosting I believe I've ever tasted. Man, I'm telling you, just looking at it makes me salivate. But they've never tasted it. Amen. They know it. They know the baker. They know where it come from. But they've never tasted it. Amen. And the psalmist said, enough of living on somebody else's second-hand experiences. i got to have my own piece of cake. i got to get in this thing. No, if we want God to do something in this generation, it's going because this generation rises up and says, I cannot live on what grandma had and what grandpa had, but I gotta have something myself. I've gotta go God myself. I've gotta sense the presence and the power of God demonstrated myself. Here's Elijah, the man of God. He's going to be taken away today in a miraculous way. A whirlwind's going to receive him up. He's gone. And his mentor, Elisha, is following close by steps. Everybody's knowing he's leaving today. The sons of the prophet said, do you not know your master will be taken today? And he said, yeah, I know it. And he said, uh, Elisha stays with him through several places. And he comes down and he said, what do you want from me, Elisha? And he said, Elijah, if it please you, he said, what I want is a double portion. I want a double portion of what you've got. I got, I got to have something that you've got. I've been pouring hands on your, I've been pouring water on your hands. I've been serving you, but I, I, I got to have something more for me. I got to have a double portion. Elijah said, son, if you see me when I leave, it's a hard thing, but you'll get it. You remember the story. They came down to the river Jordan. The sons of the prophet are standing on the sideline. And by the way, there's a lot standing on the sideline. Don't be satisfied with a sideline view. Amen. Get in. Go over the Jordan and stay close. They was watching on the sideline. And the Bible said Elijah comes down the river Jordan. He takes his mantle off, that old cloth that covered him and sheltered him and protected him from the elements. And it was his companion. He takes it off and he folds it in half and smites the waters. And the waters roll back. And here they go on dry ground. They cross over the Jordan. No sooner have they got over the Jordan, the whirlwind, the chariots, the fire. Here goes Elijah. He's gone. Elijah's standing up there, no doubt squinting his eyes, looking up into the glaze of that fiery chariot. And he says, oh my, he's gone. What am I going to do now? And about that time, here comes that mantle. It probably dropped like a rock, but I think it floated. And it's a floating back down, floating back down, floating back down. And he sits there on the ground and he looks at it. He looks at that mantle. And he looks at those sons of the prophets that are watching. And he looks back up at the sky that's now closed. And there's nobody there. Elijah is gone. But there's a mantle. And there's somebody watching. And there's a river behind him. And I imagine with sweaty palms... And I don't mean to say that he had all the faith in the world. I believe his statement clarifies that. But he reached down and he picked up that mantle. Everybody's watching him. Is it going to be real? Is it going to work for another generation? Or has it run its course? Is it just a fad passing in time? Elijah reached down. Elisha reached down and picked up that mantle. He folded it like he saw Elijah fold it. (laughs) By the way, he didn't change mantles. (laughs) 
Hallelujah. Glory to God. And uh, he didn't change methods. Uh, I believe he folded it together just like he saw Elijah do it. And he walked back down to the same Jordan where there was the same need. uh, And the waters were still raging. uh, And the crowd was still watching. uh, And he said with a little bit of doubt in his voice, Where is the Lord God uh, of Elijah? And he smote those waters. uh, And from that moment on, Brother Nathan, he never needed to say, Where's the Lord God of Elijah because now He's the Lord God of Elisha. And I'm telling you, somebody better pick up the mantle that's fallen by the wayside and say, I can't live on what they did. I can't live on their experiences. But i got to have something personal. God, show up in my life. I'm going to tell you something. You'll have to learn to pray a prayer and watch God answer it when nobody else knows it. You'll have to need a mountain moved and watch God move it when nobody else knows it needs to be moved. Hallelujah. And Samuel, sometimes the way you move mountains is get the shovel out. Hallelujah. You start and see what God will do. Amen. Show us. There's a pleading. It's personal. It's proven. You ever thought about it? Let me get there to you. What the most intriguing little stories in our Bible from a chronological perspective, you Bible scholars figure this out, okay, is the story of David. Because when you get to the Valley of Elam and David is about to fight Goliath, everybody preaches about a boy who comes in a shepherd's cart, and he did. (laughs) As though he knows nothing about warfare. But in the previous chapter, chronologically, he was in the house of Saul playing music for Saul, and he was noted to be a mighty man of valor, a pretty good warrior. So much so, Brother Gene, that Saul, what's this, made him his armor bearer. So when you get to the next story, Saul acts like you don't know him. He has gone home because the three elder brothers are fighting. Somebody has to go home and help the old man with the sheep. So David's gone back home because his elder brothers are in the battle. When he comes down to the battle to check on him, he comes running into the battle. He himself knows something about the means of war. He knows how to fight, so to speak. He's got some skill, some some skill. And they say, he says, I'll fight him. And they rush him in and stand before Saul. Saul acts like he don't know him, and then he says something like this. He ought to remember him, amen. He throws javelin at him, but I mean, you know, he ought to say who did. He said, he said, well, if you're going to fight him, that's a good thing. Go put my armor on. David knew that armor probably better than Saul. He was the armor bearer, which meant literally he carried it, but it also implied that he that he that he 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 serviced it or maintained it. He knew where its strengths was. He knew what its weaknesses were. He knew what joints needed to be oiled. He knew what was exposed and what was covered, and he knew the weight of it, and he knew the thickness of it, and he knew the ability of it, but he never had put it on. He knew something about it because he'd heard about it, he'd held it, he'd talked about it, but he never had tried it to see if it really would stop the adversary's sword. He wanted to know would it really stop the arrows of the enemy. He never had proved it. And so he goes to, he goes to Saul and said, I'm going to fight him, but I can't use that armor. I hadn't tried that one and proved it. But he said, there is something I have tried. Somebody said, oh, he knew about a shepherd's bag. He knew about five smooth stones. Uh, Fooly. He knew about God. <laughs> 
Amen. I don't believe David went down there trusting his own ability. He didn't know his own skill. But he didn't go trust his own ability. He said it was God that helped me beat a bear. And it was God that helped me beat a lion. And by the way, he did them both at the same time. Good shepherd handle a bear on any day. And a good shepherd take care of a lion on any day. But as in the Bible said, David declared it was a bear and a lion that came on the same time. And he said, then I couldn't do it by myself. But he said, the God that delivered me out of the hand of the bear and the paw of the lion is the same one that will be able to deliver me out of the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. He was trusted in what he knew. He was trusted in God. Some of you better start stepping out. Some of you better start looking out. Some of you better start living out and letting God do something in your because you're going to have to you're going to have to prove him you're going to have to prove him God wants to do something for you but you're going to have to want it I'm not going to be mean when I say this you're going to have to want it more than you want anything else you're going to have to want it more than you want anything else you've got to want it personal and you're going to want God to prove some things in your life. Amen. Show us. Let me give you this. He said, then grant us. That means to give. And in this context, it speaks about a manifestation. Here's literally what he said. Lord, don't leave us by ourselves. Lord, I want to do something for you, but only if you go with me. <laughs> Amen. He said we need a we need a manifestation of God in our lives. The word grant means to give authority or approval or provide assistance. And so he appeals to God. He appeals to God. Without you, we're lost. Without you, we can do nothing. Without you, we cannot accomplish anything. So help us. I'm closing with this. He said, number one, give us your permission to go forward. Amen. God's willing to grant permission if you'll ask him tonight. But have you asked him? Have you asked God to do something in your life? Have you asked God to do something in your life, young couple? Have you asked God to do something in your life, young lady? Have you specifically said, here I am, Lord. Grant your power in my life to do something in my life. Number two, he asked for provision. Like Nehemiah of old, he said, Lord, I want to go build back the walls, king. But he said, you'll have to provide not only the permission for me to go, but the lumber. Have you asked God to supply what you need to do something for him? Number three, he said, give us power. Let us not operate in the energy of the flesh, but in the power of God. But lastly, most importantly, like Moses of old, he said, give us your presence. When Israel seeing God said, I'm going to let you go, but I'm not going with you. Moses said, no, thank you. <laughs> We'd rather die in the wilderness than to go on without God. Even if you send your angels to fight and we have victory, if we don't have God, we don't want you. We don't want it. And when God hesitated, God hadn't moved like those who thought he should. He went up and he said, Lord, are you going or not? There was a song popular, I guess, the David, it probably came out in the late 70s. 
John's torn me with things. I won't walk without Jesus. I won't talk without Jesus. I refuse to live one day as before. I won't go without Jesus. Some of it just going on on your own and you're living on what they knew and what they saw and you're living on what they've got. But you need to stop dead in your tracks and say, Lord, I ain't going no further unless it's in me. Unless you're real to me. Unless it's your power. That's what I've got to have. We've got to have the presence of God real in our lives. The only place you've ever shouted is in the church house. Go back home and stay in your closet till you can shout. Then come back and shout at the house of God. The only prayer you've ever ever answered is what everybody else knew about. Go home and find your prayer closet and pray. And ask God to answer and stay until God does something for you. And don't be satisfied with what He's done for somebody else. Tell Him you appreciate that. But you want something for yourself. You want to feel His presence for yourself. You've got to know His power for yourself. You can't run on somebody else's battery. But you have run on what God God's got for you, but it's going to take somebody getting hungry. Somebody's got to get desperate. Somebody's got to seek Him until they find Him. Will it be you? Will it be you, teenager? How about you, young lady? Oh, get it. Get real close to God and stay in your prayer closet, stay in the Word of God, and they'll say, You're weird. I'd better be weird for Jesus. Come on, Brother David. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, altars are open. What you need to do tonight is somebody better say, show us. I appreciate the way you helped others, but I need you to show something. You helped others, but i got to have something. Show us. God, give us young families. Give us young ladies. Give us young men. And say, Lord, nothing else matters except pleasing Jesus. Drawing so close to Him that the world can see Him in us. Our plans are irrelevant. Our hopes and dreams are irrational. Our future is meaningless. Without Jesus being exalted in everything we do, let us be consumed by Him. Do you want something? Do you want something? Come on, we'll get you a piece of cake. Do you want something? Are you going to be satisfied just to live on what everybody else has experienced? We're standing all over the house. Altars are already full, but there's room. There's room. You make your way down tonight and do business with God. Sing the I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I I need
statement. And it simply said, we might read a dozen books so we know the taste of honey. But the only way to truly know is to taste so that you may know the sweetness of it. To truly know the mercy is to seek it. It's to seek it, to pray for it, to search for it, to ask for it. We're going to sing another verse. Brother David, you go ahead. The altar is open. about the cake Um, but there's so much truth in that and what's sad is there's too many people that are satisfied with the crumbs there's so many people and maybe even here tonight that are satisfied with just hearing how sweet the cake was but I want more than that I, I want my children to want more than that they've experienced more than that they've they've been in but it's more than just an experience. I need them. I need them when they get to an adult. I need them to say, well, I remember when I was a kid. I don't want them just to say that. I want them to say, well, at my church. I want them to say, well, the last time we were together, we worshiped the Lord. I want them to have an ever-present time with the Lord. I like what he said. If, if, if you're only shouting at church and you can't shout at home, if you're only praying here and you can't pray at home, oh my goodness, such a convicting message tonight. I praise the Lord for it this evening. I encourage you young folks, and, and I specifically say young folks is because you're kind of on that on that level where some of us that are, that are above you have, have kind of quit, quit sharing the glory of God. And so now you're just hearing about it. But you can get up there. You can scooch into the table and you can get you a bite of it. You can experience what we're talking about. Don't, don't, don't shirk that and think, well, that's just for the old folks. Brother Bobby, I remember in 1988 when I first got into church. Hunter, we were talking about Brother Dwayne and his breathing habits on Sunday. I remember that first preacher and his hacking. I thought, my goodness, he's going to have a stroke. But then I realized that outside of the hacking, there was something that he was preaching about. And I experienced it, Brother David. And he got a hold of me. I was at that time I was I don't know eight nine ten years old something like that, but brother Gene I got in when I was twelve years old. 
I wasn't one of the big guys. I was just a little snotty-nosed kid. But I'm glad that I got something that's lasted. Here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm in that middle age now, Brother Jody. But I'm glad he's still good. I'm glad he's still setting a place at the table for me. Amen. Hallelujah. If you will, Miss Tanya, get us another song tonight. Uh, just give us a good song. And uh, Kurt, you and uh, Nick, come. We're going to take up a, a love offering for the preacher tonight. And uh, so if you will, you give. And um, then we will... Uh,